Hey, so I imagine you're listening to this podcast because you're an artist yourself and you want some insider tips, insights, and general advice from artists you respect. One aspect of the business we sometimes discuss on Best Advice is rollout strategies. When you're dropping new music, you want to give it the best chance of getting heard. It's all about reaching the right listeners at the right time. That's why our team at Spotify for Artists built Marquee. Marquee is a marketing tool for turning listeners into bigger fans of your new music. With Marquee, you can send full screen recommendations of your latest album, EP, or single to the right fans as soon as they open the app. Listeners who see your Marquee are twice as likely to save your tracks, making it a better way to develop your audience than trying to drive streams from social media. To find out more, go to artists.spotify.com slash marquee. This April, Brent Burmaster was sitting at his dining room table. He was flipping through his running log from 2009. In fact, he had a whole stack of running logs he'd just retrieved from a safe at the back of his house. And 2009 is important because it's the year he moved from Raleigh, North Carolina to Dallas, Texas. He's in Dallas for Souls Harbor. Souls Harbor is a homeless shelter and addiction treatment center. Brent lives on the property. And if you didn't know it was in the city limits, you might think that you were out in the country. There are lots of big, wild lots with modest houses. It's a poorer area in an otherwise booming city. It's rural, but pretty. Well, I go for a run. I see maybe 10, sometimes 20, sometimes 30 loose dogs. Now, most of them, yes, are granted are ones that people don't fence up, but the other ones are strays. Brent is a dog person, but by any measure, 20 or 30 is a lot. In the beginning, he wanted to get to know his new neighborhood, so he chose to run down side streets over the main road. Uh, I'm trying to see. Oh, yeah. (laughs) There it is. There it is. On November 13th, 2009, got bit by two dogs. (laughs) And that's in red, by the way. (laughs) I actually took um, pictures of my bit marks, 13 of them. And that was just right down here. So you, after you got bit by those dogs, the next day you're back on the course with how many stitches? 13 stitches. In fact, what happened was I was just, like I said, I was just maybe not even a quarter mile down here. So I got my stitches and I went running that evening. So, um. (laughs) Most of us would think, well, clearly today's run was not meant to be and, you know, rest up for another day. But not Brent. He had his heart set on running a certain distance that day, and neither dogs nor stitches were going to stop him. And the logs are just filled with lots of little stories like this one. Every day he runs, he writes down the date, course, time on the road, distance, his weight, the weather, and some quick notes about the run. Ran with Boomer and Mudslide. Yes, Boomer and Mudslide. But those are my two dogs. Uh, I used to run with four dogs. Or observations about the weather or how he performed, like awesome sunrise or ran fast. Looking through these logs, it feels like looking through an old photo album. They give Brent a clear sense of joy, of pride, and they're a peek into his own complicated history. Who he was at different points in his life, and just how far he's come. 
And so on this entry, you said that distance eight miles and then distance three miles. So you right. did, you ran, ran twice, twice and twice. you ran twice, but you did an eight mile run and then a three mile run. Yes. And what I do is, um, <laughs> this is part of my, uh, regiment or my goal setting, my goal setting. If you, if you went through these logs, you know what the, the weekend is, it's always 40 miles, 40 miles. <laughs> 40 miles, yeah. right? Yeah. So I'm very driven and very methodical, very regimented. I'm going to do 40 miles. So you know what I do is I run more on Monday and Tuesday to get it over with. And then on the weekends, I, I just do casual runs. Brent is the kind of guy who does not believe in the snooze button. When he sets a goal, you better believe he's going to achieve it. And no entry is a better example than March 13th of this year. Oh, yeah. There we go. 24 years running every day. Wow. Yeah. So, and I usually, I'm surprised I didn't do Can that. Can you read day. me the entry for that day? Okay. So I did two a day. Um, the wind chill was 49 degrees. It's drizzling out. That was in the morning. And I also take the temperature in the afternoon. So On March 13th, 1993, Brent decided that he would run at least a 5K. That's 3.1 miles every day. And 24 years later, he's still doing it. The day of this episode's release, Brent will go out running twice, once in the morning and once in the evening. He will complete his 8,838th consecutive day on the road. And at the end of the day today, he will log his 53,000 281st mile since the streak started. Brent is 60 years old now, and he's run every day for over a third of his life. For a large portion of that time, running was the one thing, the structural support, that kept the rest of Brent's life from collapsing in on him. I'm Rachel Swaby, and this is Human Race. On each episode of Human Race, we tell stories about runners and the world of running. This week, Brent Burmaster and a 24-year daily running streak. In that nearly quarter century, Brent has run through ice storms, in street shoes and on freeways, through broken ribs and dog bites. He's got decades of crazy stories of things that happened to him on the run. But what makes Brent's story so surprising, it's not the streak itself. It's his dedication to the daily practice, even as another addiction, an addiction to alcohol, threatened to destroy his life. That's our story today. This April, I met Brent in the main building of Souls Harbor. The first floor is a meeting hall decorated with various plaques and pictures. It's a little hodgepodge, but welcoming. Brent is sitting at a long table when I walk in. He's got light, short, cropped hair and a goatee. You wouldn't guess that he's in his 60s. He's got a young vibe. So we sit down in an office right off the main hall, and a dog named Devo is curled up on the floor. There's so much I want to understand about Brent's life including his addiction, and his running. Like how the two coexist at all. But to understand that, 
we need to start at the beginning of Brent's running life. I imagine when you are running that long and that regularly that your running would kind of go through seasons like your life does. Like Mm -hmm. you would think about different sections of it in different ways, or at least I would think about it that way. Yeah. um, Well, the first time I went running was purely for me to lose weight and get healthy. I married uh, this gal from New Jersey. Um, We had two kids and she was... um, 100% Italian. Her mom and dad both came from Sicily. Long story short is she's a great cook, and I gained a lot of weight. (laughs) Okay, because I wasn't exercising. Brent's got this identical twin brother who's a dedicated runner. And you know siblings, they can be competitive. So Brent's brother looks at Brent and says... "What's?" He goes, there's one word for you. I said, what's that? He goes, Reduce. Because I was so fat. Maybe the sentiment is a little cruel, but the comment motivated Brent. His dad had always been overweight, and Brent really didn't want that for himself. Do you remember what the how your first run went when you decided to when you took your brother's advice and went out? Oh, it was bad. I mean, because I was out of air, I probably could run two or three blocks. Right? Um, it was just it was disgusting. I mean. <laughs> He was out of air because he was out of shape. But he also smoked three quarters of a pack of menthol cigarettes a day, a habit he picked up at age 17. He had a good but demanding job in sales at IBM. His heavy drinking was confined to the weekends. Even though his first run was rough, he got out the door again. And then again. In two years, I ran my first marathon, the uh, Dallas White Rock Marathon. And um, I trained like nobody's business. I, I was up to 120 miles a week at the very end because I was afraid I was going to, you know, just, you know, peter out and, and quit, right? And I didn't, I, you know, you hear DNF. I, don't, I didn't want DNF. Do not finish. 120 miles a week is just over 17 miles a day. That's way over what most marathon training plans suggest, even in the weeks with the heaviest mileage. So Brent jumps from sedentary, an eater, not a runner, to elite-level training in two years. Brent's daughter Amanda remembers her dad wearing short running shorts when her friend's dads were wearing, you know, normal length. She was a little embarrassed by it. I reached Amanda on the phone. I think, too, I associated his running with his classic rock mixtapes. So it was like he, he would put his headphones on the loudest, possible decibel that it would go like his cheesy little 90s walkman and he would actually make tape for running and it would be like he's like pumping dire straits and like the rolling stones and like alice cooper and tom petty and leonard skinnerd and he's like just going nuts but this was also just her dad he was the kind of person who took things to the extreme when he was really into something he was hardcore about it In 1992, five years after he started running, Brent decided to up his commitment to the sport. He loved running so much that he figured, why not do what I love every single day? Now today, there are Facebook groups for run streakers, and there's a national organization that you have to apply to get into. In fact, here's a little plug here. Runner's World is launching its own challenge to readers and listeners. 
run at least a mile 39 days in a row this summer, from Memorial Day to the 4th of July. That one mile per calendar day, by the way, is what the United States Run Streak Association requires as the minimum distance. So Brent was running significantly more than that. But back then, Brent didn't know any other runners who made it a goal to run every single day. In fact, the organization that tracks the run streaks, it wasn't even established until 2000. So he set his minimum distance at 5K, or 3.1 miles. And he took off. And then 14 months into his streak, he was on a business trip to Florida. He was staying with his in-laws, and he got sick while he was there. He had a fever and decided to stay home from work. My Italian mother-in-law said, you aren't going out running. I go, you know what, I'm not going to go out running. I'm a little sick today. The streak ended there. But missing the day really bothered Brent. And I thought, that's kind of stupid. I mean, I hear I had a little dislight fever. After that point, I go, I go, now, from now on, I'm going to keep the streak going. And not just going. Brent decided... Sparing major injury, I could do this forever. March 12th, 1993, is the day that ended his first streak. March 13th, 1993 is when he started his current one. That was 24 years ago. Brent says one key to his success is consistency. He knows how much he wants to run every week and he makes a plan to get those miles in. He runs in the morning to get it out of the way. And on normal weeks, his schedule is entirely predictable. Each Monday, he runs the same number of miles and takes the same route. Getting out takes very little thinking. I think it's just really incredible that you, your mindset wasn't, oh, I'm just going to start this and see how long I can keep it up, but that from the beginning you thought, I am going to do this for the rest of my life. Yes, that's the way it is. I mean, it's, that's my addictive personality or my regimented personality is that that's my mindset. It's like, it's like brushing your teeth every morning. Do you just go, oh, I'm not going to brush my teeth? No, you're going to do it, right? <laughs> and, and really, some people don't enjoy brushing their teeth. I enjoy running. I enjoy being outside. I think it's funny that he described it as, like, brushing his teeth because, like... Here's Amanda again. His, I mean, I don't think he's, like, so intense about brushing his teeth, or I hope he's not because if he was, his teeth would fall out or something. But he was very, like, it was militant, like, disciplined about running. And it was never just, like oh, this is going to be an easy run, you know, I'm going outside, enjoying nature, you know. It's like he had his headphones on, he was, like, pumping classic rock, he was, like, pushing himself to his limits. So it was, like, very, for me, my perspective, it was so intense. Amanda, by the way, is not a runner. The intensity of her dad's dedication, it scared her off a bit. But she and her brother have fond memories of growing up with their dad's stories. Brent ran in ice storms, in jeans, and after being hit by a car. Here's one story that stands out in Amanda's mind. It starts with an urgent need for the toilet. Brent, by the way, did not mention this one in our conversation. He ran himself again into like a rural woods where who knows what was lurking in these woods. And he's like, oh, I had to go to the bathroom really bad. And no one was <laughs> went to the bathroom. And he's like, I had to, you know, wipe. And he's like, I grabbed this this bush and I wiped. It was poison ivy. <laughs> and so 
And it was like, you know, not only did I have to hear a story, I had to imagine like this huge rash on my dad's ass, you know, (laughs) just like, thank you, dad. Here's one more nutty fact to add to Brent's list. In 24 years of running every day, he's only run indoors five times. Five times in 8,800-something days. Amanda tells me about one of them. The setup is that they were visiting their family in Atlanta, and while they're there, there's an ice storm. He literally could not go outside, which was crazy because, like, you know, his running streak. So we're, like, all in this house, kind of cooped up. We all have cabin fever. And my dad just makes it so much worse because now he's in a bad mood because he thinks he has to, like, break his runner streak. And then I think, too, he had, like, a temperature of 103 degrees. So my mom's like, you know, maybe take a day off. It doesn't matter. My dad's like, no, you know, this will break my streak. I can't. So he's just, like, so upset. And everybody's getting more anxious because he's upset. Amanda's uncle had a treadmill in the basement. And he's like, ha, I put in my miles today (laughs) they're just like okay great now can we all calm down like you did it good job (laughs) classic kid looking at their dad and thinking ugh, moment and i can certainly put myself in amanda's shoes but i also understand where brent is coming from i mean think about it brent is deeply dedicated to what he believed then and and still believes today decades later would be a lifelong pursuit. Getting a run in is more than just, you know, getting outdoors one more day. On a run streak, every run you complete carries the momentum of the ones before it. Stopping a streak might feel like losing months, years, or decades worth of work. This treadmill incident happened pretty early on. Since then, Brent has been through so much more. He can't even imagine a scenario that would stop him, barring something catastrophic. And he knows this because he's already gone through hell. And I am not talking about bad weather, broken bones, or getting lost kind of bad times. I'm talking about the life-destroying consequences of Brent's addiction to alcohol. Brent started his streak in Dallas, but shortly after he moved to North Carolina for work. Brent had always been a big drinker, but he saw himself as one of those guys who liked to party, who liked to drink and have fun. But his drinking bothered his wife. A few years after they moved, his wife left him for someone else. When me and my wife uh, got divorced, which was in 96, 97 time frame, um, my alcoholism really kicked in. Exercise for him went from fitness or competition to a mode of survival. That story, after the break. And we're back. In 1993, Brent Burmaster started a running streak that he wanted to last the rest of his life. But then, his life as he knew it made maintaining that goal kind of insane. My alcoholism really kicked off when my first wife left me. Okay, because then I could drink like I wanted to drink because there was no bars, no governor, if you want to call that. By 1997, they were divorced and Brent began going out nightly. I was a bar guy. That's what. So I lived in bars, right? Brent would routinely drink a fifth of scotch and then follow it by a bottle or two of wine. 
and he still needs to get up early to get his run in. And, I, and every time I'd wake up at 5.30 in the morning, I'd be really hungover. Or sometimes I would, if it's like a, a Saturday or a Sunday, well, especially a Saturday because Sunday I'd sleep in, but Saturday when I'd run with the guys, I'd still be drunk. And so it's kind of scary, but you get your bearings and you, you, that first mile, you just say, I'm not going to do this tonight. I'm not going to drink. I, I'm, you know, I, I'm abusing myself. And as long as I get through my first mile or so, then my cadence just kicks in. And once my cadence kick in, then it becomes fairly easy. He'd shower, go to work. His coworkers none the wiser. He wouldn't plan to drink the next night, but inevitably he'd wind up back at a bar. And before he knew it, his alarm would go off, and at 5.30 in the morning, he'd wake up with a wicked hangover. But he had a streak to maintain, so he'd put on his running shoes and start the whole cycle over. I mean... Could you just imagine? Could you even imagine how hard on your body that much alcohol must be? And then just how insanely painful it would be to run the next morning. It's just unfathomable. And again, it's not like he's going to a wedding once a year and he kind of drinks too much and then gets up early to run the next morning. He's making the decision, the choice, to do this every single day. Now, Brent's son, Kevin, wondered about this pattern. How was it possible to go so hard at night and then run so early in the morning? So one, one, one uh, evening, I was like, you know, Stace, I'm going to see, see like, what my dad went through. Uh, I, I want to just try this out as a little experiment for myself. I'm going to get really drunk, and I'm going to wake up early, and then I'm going to go run three miles. <laughs> Um, you know, it's one of those things that you go out there and you're not feeling so hot and then you get back and you're just completely, you know, I was completely sick. I mean, it was most sick I've ever been. Um, so I was like, wow, I can't believe my, my old man did this for, for so long. When you um, say sick, do you mean just like sick to your stomach or you mean like actually puking? Oh, no, I was vomiting. I, I vomited the whole day. <laughs> he did this as an adult, by the way. And it kind of goes without saying, but I would not recommend replicating the experiment. It's crazy to say it, but this head-splitting routine created a sort of perverse balance. Here's the thing. Heavy alcohol consumption is bad for the brain and body. We all know this. It negatively affects everything from your cardiovascular system to your liver to your brain centers for executive functioning. It can cause widespread inflammation and oxidative stress, the extent of which scientists still don't fully understand. But we're definitely talking about damaging neurons, which may be associated with diminished ability to weigh risky decisions and impulse control. Down the line, inflammation may be related to alcoholic liver disease, stroke, and a slew of other serious health problems. But exercise can mitigate some of those effects. Running strengthens your cardiovascular system, and increasing evidence suggests that it might also be able to protect the neurons in your brain. It's not going to erase the damage of heavy alcohol consumption, but it can reduce alcohol's negative impact. Furthermore, Brent believes that without running, he would have lost his job and maybe everything else. An alcoholic will carry that odor with them 
at work. Well, if you run six, eight miles, you can't smell anything. You, you've sweated that stuff out. Run, sweat out the alcohol, work, drink. Run, sweat out the alcohol, work, drink. It was a fragile balance. But most of the time it worked. Brent believed that he was in control. Until he wasn't. One night, Brent was driving home from a bar when a police officer pulled him over. He was charged with a DWI. That's driving while intoxicated. I got picked up, I don't know, at 2 o'clock in the morning when the bars closed. And um, so they, they left me there for a long, long time. Brent was in the drunk tank for the rest of the night. They didn't release him in the morning, which means Brent wasn't able to run, but he also wasn't able to go to work. He was still locked up in the afternoon, and he remained there into the evening. At 10 p.m., the police finally released him. And so my girlfriend picked me up, and you know what the first thing I said to her? I got to get my run in. So at 11 o'clock that night, I went running my 5K. I ran really quick. Brent had to tell his work that he had a family emergency, and he wasn't able to come in. It was a lie to cover for his addiction. I go, this ain't going to happen again, because this is not cool. This is going to cost me my job. Now at this point, you're probably thinking the reasonable thing to do here is to stop drinking. A DWI is serious, and drinking is poisoning his running, threatening his health, and his job. It's not worth it. The drinking should go. But Brent is a self-professed control freak, and he had another solution to this problem. Um, and that's when I decided never ever again I'm going to do get a DWI. I just took taxis yeah. from then on. And so the insane cycle continued. How did that happen? How could you think that you could keep running while also drinking? It seems really... Well, okay, so for me, you know, I'm a Catholic, and so I call it Catholic guilt mentality of saying, you know, I did this to myself. I'm a bad boy, so to kind of rectify that, I'm going to go run and get all those evil spirits and poison <laughs> my system, and, and that's the way I treat it. It was a yin and yang of my personality. Running was his punishment. It was about control and suffering, there to counteract the drinking and fun. Running did help Brent keep his job. He showed up to work alert, on time, and not smelling like alcohol. But I wonder also if running enabled his drinking. It gave him a feeling that as long as he could log his miles, his addiction to alcohol was not winning. So he continued drinking. Brent may not have seen it then, but he was not in control. So did anybody know? Did your running buddies know? Did your work know? Did your kids know? Did your ex-wife know? Did anyone know oh, that you were doing this? The people living with you know. Okay, so um, when I was single, um, on and off, my daughter and my son would come in and live with me for a while. And they knew. Amanda knew, but she also just thought her dad was kind of wild. Like, he took everything past 100%, and running and drinking were no exceptions. It was him, like, drinking and being crazy, man, and then, like, going on these, like, epic runs when, like, other people would be like, I'm so hungover, I'm just going to lay in bed and eat a hamburger all day and watch movies. My dad's like, I'm going to run to the bad parts of town, like, 30 miles away, and then see if I make it home alive, you know? <laughs> it's just like, wow. <laughs> 
From Brent's perspective, he remembers thinking about his relationship to his kids like a game of chess. Good chess players don't think about the next move. They're thinking about eight or nine moves ahead. And that's the way I was working. And that's why that translated into my home life too. And so I knew what my kids were going to say about my addiction, alcoholism or whatever. And I would have the canned response, right? It would work like this. Brent would drink to the point of blacking out. You're still functioning and talking, but you don't remember anything, anything. And so I would say the most hideous things or do the most hideous things. And then my son and my daughter the next morning would go, Dad, do you remember you saying this last night? And you may, you embarrassing me. And, you know, and I had a calm response. I'd go, well, I'm sorry. Or, you know, the other thing I'd say, well, I'm going to get sober. And, you know, all those other lies that I would say. And so they would say, no, you're not. And then I would say, you know, something else. Again, this game of chess gave Brent the illusion that he was in control. Meanwhile, he got remarried and divorced again. Other romantic relationships ended because of his drinking. Sometimes his daughter couldn't get in touch with him for days. Without a doubt, Bren's drinking hurt the people around him. There was this one time that he took his kids and his girlfriend and her kid to San Diego for Christmas. And he was trying to get that little plastic tie off some eyeglasses that he bought at the grocery store. And he picked a really big knife, and he was really drunk. The knife sliced into his hand pretty, pretty badly. There was blood everywhere. He had to go to the ER. He continued to drink through dinner. Amanda remembers it differently. She remembers a fight between Brent and his girlfriend. The sliced hand is the same, but the details are different. And so what he did to, like, fight her was like a little, like, Gigi Allen punk rock move. Gigi Allen was a musician that often self-mutilated on stage. Like, profusely, like, cut his hand. So he's just, like, dripping blood. And he, the whole time he's laughing. And I ruined it for everybody there. I ruined it because of my alcoholism, you know? And I didn't realize that. And that's when my girlfriend said, enough, enough. Yet another romantic relationship ended. The next day, Brent went out running. After the break, a decision, another move across the country, and the third season of Brent's running streak. We'll be right back. That siren is a tornado warning. But the day I'm in Brent's office at Souls Harbor, it's just a test. A tornado way it works is you have warm weather. And then when the warm weather is here and then the cold front comes in, then that creates a tornado. And so they test, they test the... The Brent sitting next to me in this office now is a very different Brent. Today, Brent is the executive director of Souls Harbor, the addiction treatment center and homeless shelter for men. He moved here back to Dallas from North Carolina to take the job in 2009. And his house is actually on the property. Today, Brent channels his control freak side into constantly improving a program that helps other addicts find a way through their disease. And he's really good at it. He researches programs used at fancy treatment centers and implements them at Souls Harbor. Same day I was there, they kicked off a four-week seminar called Owner of the Brain, which tackled the cognitive piece of addiction recovery. There's also yoga, life skills help, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous meetings. 
He often encourages the guys there to do cardio instead of lifting weights because of the stress of their various addictions on their cardiovascular system. While I was there, Brent gave me a tour of the facility, which spans several buildings. First, we went up to the sleeping area over the meeting hall. And in there, the lights are kind of dimmed, and there are a bunch of twin beds spread out with clothing racks next to them. So, hey, Chris, how you doing, man? I told him, he, you know, instead of lifting weight, what do you, what do you need to do? Cardio. <laughs> you can't really hear it, but he says right? cardio. <laughs> in another sleeping area, Brent sees a guy just moving in. We're walking down a staircase that's outside, and you can hear the birds. There are so many birds in the trees next to us. He came up through the uh, foster care system. Um, And and here's the problem with foster care is um, you graduate from the foster care when they're 18, and it's just like, here's a thousand bucks, and boom, they kick them out. And it's like, wow. I mean, my heart aches for those. But Harold went through that. I've known him since... You know, I got here 2009, so he called me Monday. I said, you know, we're having a guy move out. The guy just graduated from the program. I said, let's let's work. And I got an intake coordinator that helped me out. On that. So if you've been here before, do you kind of get moved up yeah. on the list? Yeah. Brent finds this deeply rewarding work. And as he goes around talking to the guys here, you can really see how much he cares about the people who come through. At one point on this tour, we come upon a group of residents relaxing on the porch of one of the dorms. And there are a few dogs lounging with them, including Devo, the howling dog from earlier. Yep, there's Devo again. That's, this, have we named this dog yet? This is, our, this is our new dog here. This is Rachel. Hi, Rachel. How are you doing? Yeah. Doing all right? Hey, Miguel, Mike, Harry, Roger. Yes. No, she's interviewing me. Yeah. <laughs> it's about time somebody Peaches. interview him because he's always interviewing us. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> he keeps us on our toes. Yeah. Good. There's a lot of sharing through the recovery process. And Brent is really good at telling his story because he's had to tell it a lot. First during his recovery, and now as a kind of way to relate to the other people struggling with their addiction. Brent lost a lot to alcoholism, but he considers himself lucky. He grew up in a middle-class home, he went to college, maintained a good job, kept up an impressive running streak, and had people he loved rooting for his sobriety. I, you know, I did this to myself. These, most of these guys out here, they're, they're using drugs or drinking with their parents at a very early... Can you imagine 12 years old shooting up? No. I mean... When these guys share their stories, and then that coupled with a lot of these guys with sexual abuse, it's like, no wonder why he's a heroin addict. You know, and so it's very easy for us people, middle class, to judge other people. But I guarantee you, what would happen if your mom shot up heroin and you're shouting up heroin? You're going to be a heroin addict. On one of the walls of the main meeting hall, Brent has this sort of picture collage of people who've been through Souls Harbor who've also died because of their addiction. It's a reminder to the residents that life is fragile and being there and sticking to the program is really important, like life or death important. Brent has this saying. He calls addiction the great eraser. Addicts lose their finances, the people they love, their health and hope. And these four things together 
they're a deadly combination. Brent was once in the meeting hall and he asked how many guys at Souls Harbor had tried to commit suicide. And 40% raised their hand. Souls Harbor helps the guys find their way back from these things. And when they do, they move further away from the people whose stories are framed on the wall. For Brent, he did not make it through his addiction unscathed. But he fared better than most. He maintained his job, so his finances, hope, and health throughout. He did lose people he loved, but he didn't damage his relationships, say, with his kids beyond repair. And he credits all of that to running. And there are studies to back this up. Not only will running mitigate some of the harmful effects of heavy drinking on your body, and I want to really stress some, not all here, But it can also lessen a person's responses to psychosocial stressors that come from addiction. For example, alcohol dependence can cause significant strain on relationships, and running might be able to help us deal with this stress more effectively. This is all to say that without running, Brent could have been a resident of the shelter instead of the managing director of it. Brent will be sober for 10 years on June 6th. And back in his office, I asked him what made the difference for him, how he was able to stop drinking. And he said his decision came after another relationship crumbled because of his drinking. So one afternoon, he was working from home at his girlfriend's house, and he was trying to stay away from alcohol, but he decided to bend his own rules and and put vodka in his Sprite can. This was at 5.30 in the evening. By 9 p.m., his girlfriend had kicked him out. And of course, so for a month there, I got really stupid and got really, really drunk. And then after I came to my senses, I go, you know, this is going to happen over and over again. And I'm going to fall in love. And then I'm going to break my heart, probably break the gals I'm with heart. I said, I need to stop this. He tried Alcoholics Anonymous, AA, once before. But that was when he was with his first wife. Back then, he only showed up to meetings. There are kind of three main pillars of AA. So one is the 12-step program. One is a sponsor, which is another addict that provides support. Once you get a sponsor, the sponsor helps you get through the 12 steps. And then there are the meetings. So I walked right in straight into the rooms, and I got myself a sponsor. And it started the journey right there. It took him two years to work through AA's 12-step program. Through the program, Brent had to do things like admit that his life had become unmanageable. In another step, you have to make amends to the people you've harmed. Another asks you to turn your life over to God. And for Brent, that last step, it was the hardest one. I spent nine months on that step because I still wanted control. The control made him the kind of guy who never pushed the snooze button, the guy who could will himself through eight awful hungover miles, who kept his working life together even through his heavy drinking. But in AA, his control was interfering with his ability to sustain recovery. And my sponsor in North Carolina, God bless him, kept harping on me, no, you you don't get this. You're still trying to run the show. And I was. And to this day, that's one of my character defects is I like to run the show. The program not only helped him get and stay sober, but it came with a wave of revelations. Take his divorce to his first wife, his kid's mother. 
Now, Brent had always blamed her for their split. She left him for someone else, which meant it was her fault. And my sponsor asked me, said, what would happen? And I said, well, you know, Friday and Saturday night, she'd just be crying, you know, in the living room. And here I'm just plastered. And my sponsor said to me, well, don't you see your part in? I go, no, I don't have a part in our divorce. He goes, she was emotionally reaching out to you, but you were, you were so drunk, so in such a stupor, you weren't there. And so now she reached out to somebody who gave her that emotional support. And it was like this big light bulb. And it, I tell everybody this, I used to think my divorce, the first one was 99% her fault and 1% my fault. Now it's like, it's 99% my fault. And I can see that. And you know, I made amends with her. I made amends with my son and my daughter. Another big thing that happened was that Brent's life began to shift focus. During my addiction, I lived in my head. Okay, so, and 95% of my thoughts were about me, 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 me. Recovery is a sort of self-centered process as well. But during this time, his sponsor asked him to pray for one thing. To keep you sober and clean for that day in the morning. And then one additional request. His sponsor suggested that he pray for three other people he knew who were going through hard times. And see, it's, I don't know if you ever watched Karate Kid, but Karate Kid, remember the wax on, wax off? And, and he thought he was just waxing all these cars and then painting his fences, remember that? He didn't understand that he was learning karate. And see, that happened to me because here I'm praying for other people. And I got out of myself. And now Brent cares about other people for a living. In fact, in 2009, he beat out 100 other applicants for the position. One moment that sealed it for him was when he was asked about that DWI on his record. And Brent could have explained it away as a bad decision. But that would have been a chess move like the one he used to pull with his kids. So, in that interview, he admitted he was an alcoholic. No doubt that helped him get the job. And when he got it, he moved from North Carolina to Dallas. Brent's kids really admire their dad. They admire his dedication to running and also his dedication to his work. Here's Amanda. You know, he's just such a spiritually marvelous person. He's so quick to forgive and he's, he's so loving. You know, because even if my brother and I, you know, we talk and I always said to Kevin that I feel so lucky and I feel very grateful to have the type of dad I did because when we were little, it's like he never put anyone on a pedestal. He really taught my brother and I. It's like you look at the spirit of the person and you look at their actions and you look at the way that they make people feel. And my dad always, if anything, from his raunchy jokes to, you know, his laugh. He always wanted people to be happy around him. So it's easy to love him. Amanda likes to picture him now running in the morning with a pack of wild dogs, just enjoying being out there. No more blaring Walkman or punishment. Because Brent has now entered the third season of his running. So the first season was fitness, the second was survival or penance. And actually, that second season, it lasted for a long time after he got sober. So Brent was no longer hungover every morning, but he still felt like hard and brutal was the mode of running that he deserved. He still had so much guilt. And you know, the habit of his running was that it should hurt. 
but two years into recovery, Brent realized that running was no longer supporting his alcoholism. He'd made amends with the people he loved, and he stopped being, these are his words, a bad boy every night. Running no longer needed to be something that he did to assuage his guilt. So he made the conscious decision to take the pressure off. And today he goes out every day just for the pure pleasure of it. He says his prayers on the road, takes in the time outdoors. It's now I'm in the enjoyable phase right now. Well, I just go and I run with my dogs. I'm kind of slow now compared to what I was 10 years ago. But that's okay. I'm comfortable with myself. I'm more peaceful. I'm not as uptight. I don't, I'm enjoying life. Now that sounds like something he can maintain for the rest of his life. This episode was produced by me, Rachel Swaby, with feedback from Brian Dalek and Sylvia Ryerson. Special thanks to Hollis Carroll, a doctoral student at the University of Colorado Boulder, for her help with the science of alcoholism and exercise. Our theme music is by Danny Koch. David Willey is the editor-in-chief of Runner's World and the editor-in-chief of this podcast. Human Race is a proud part of Panoply. If you are interested in starting a run streak this summer, the 2017 Runner's World Summer Running Streak starts on Memorial Day and wraps up on July 4th. That's 39 days in a row of running at least one mile every day. You can find more information online at runnersworld.com slash rwrunstreak. And just a warning. So I did this challenge four years ago and I ended up running every day for three years. It was one of the best experiences of my life. Anyways, check it out. We will be back with a new episode in two weeks. And I should say, for a reason that is way too boring to explain here, the next episode will actually be out on June 7th. That's a Wednesday. We'll be back to our every other Tuesday schedule after that.